I moved to Canada in 2006 uh, with my three kids and at the time I was still wearing a burqa and I knew nothing about business and if you had said the word entrepreneur to me I would have had no idea what that meant. Prior to that uh, I was born in Uganda and we left Uganda when Idi Amin kicked out all the brown people. They uh, pretty much strip searched everybody on the way to the airport at multiple check stops. So by the time we got to the airport, all that was left was $7 that they missed in my dad's shoes. And my dad said that was just enough money for everybody to have breakfast in uh, Cairo. This country is uh, definitely a country that gives you opportunities that you don't get anywhere else. So uh, very grateful for that. Can you imagine being a two-year-old girl and you have to escape with your family from your home country, Uganda? Why? Because a military coup led by Idi Amin, arguably one of the most brutal leaders in world history. Your parents, they have no choice. They have to flee and leave behind all they know to head somewhere that they don't know in the hope of surviving. And although they assure their children that all is well, and this is just a new adventure, I imagine you can't help but see and feel the fear and humiliation in their eyes as they head for that border. My guest today is Zara Al-Harazi. The name Zara means beautiful, bright, shining and brilliant in Arabic. And as you'll soon learn, her parents named her well. At age two, she's forced to leave Uganda, moves to Yemen, she's married at age 17, and continues with this nomadic life, moving continents once as a refugee and once as an immigrant. Thankfully for her and for us, she made Canada her home, and she gets recognized as one of Canada's top 25 immigrants. You'll soon hear why her experiences and life lessons didn't make her a victim, but a successful speaker, philanthropist, and entrepreneur. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. I chat with ordinary people who do extraordinary things despite circumstance. In doing so, their life lessons inspire us to do more and to be more to get us where we need, want, and deserve to go. Zara, today you're the co-founder of MySkillet, an experiential marketplace for skills. You're named as one of Canada's most powerful women, Canadian Women Entrepreneur of the Year, top 40 under 40. You received the Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal for your contributions to the country. You're a speaker, author, and entrepreneur. And I love how you introduce yourself in the cover to your book, What It Takes. Could you read it for us? I am a girl from Yemen. For me, this simple sentence holds endless complexity. You likely have already formed some opinion about me, about this book. I will tell you though, that whatever you first imagined me to be, I am also the opposite. I am East and I am West and every single damn thing in between. From obedient Muslim daughter to one of Canada's most powerful women. From dutiful housewife to independent businesswoman. From not being allowed to drive to getting my very own motorcycle from a 20-year-old married woman with children to a 40-something wild child. I am a million conflicted contradictions rolled into one uncomplicated, complicated person. I spent much of my life bending myself into thousands of different shapes in order to be the person I thought I had to be. Ultimately, I learned that what I needed was not the ability to fit in, but the freedom and the courage to step away. This is a story about what happens when the ideals to which you cling to most tightly begin to slip from your grasp. What that openness feels like beyond the fear that without those definitions, there is no you. 
This book is about what it takes to build a life that is your own, to free your mind from its many ugly demons, and to walk into the future without the chains that hold you back. It would have been really easy for you to say all that stuff in my knapsack, all this polarity that you talk about, could easily have made you a victim. But you refused that path. What gave you the courage to go, well, that's the cards I'm dealt versus here's the cards I intend to play? Oh, a whole bunch of things. You know, I think pride plays a big part in that. I, I don't want to be a victim. I do want to be positive. I My glass, um, one of my favorite quotes, and, and you'll have to forgive me and, and bleep this out if, if you don't like a swear in there, but Sir Ken Robinson, um, they asked him in an interview one time and they said, you know, is your glass half full or half empty? And he said, who the f cares? Drink it and fill it up again. Right. And I love that quote because you we dwell too much on the negative and that stops us from being positive and being successful and 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 getting the things that you want in life. And I, I don't like regrets. Um, I, I don't like feeling weak. I don't like feeling um, stopped because I've been stopped my entire life. You know, whether um, girls are not allowed to run. I was never allowed gym class. I wasn't allowed to go outside by myself. I talked to a boy outside school one day and it was just my sister's brother and I got caned for it. My entire life, people have told me what I cannot do. And I got to the point where I'm like, that's enough. I, I want to do what I want to do. And in order to do that, I had to find the positive. I had to find the energy. I had to leave the victimhood behind because I truly believe that the lessons that you learn in your life, you know, especially the bad ones, the things that bring you to your knees, those are the things that make you stronger and make you better and make you more capable and, 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 you know, make you more relatable. And, uh, and so I focused on the lessons as opposed to what was potentially done to me. Was your mother a bit of your trailblazer? Cause you mentioned that when in Yemen, she was one of the first women to get a driver's license and have a job. Was she somebody that also said, just because these are the circumstances that we're asked to live within, we can find our own boundaries, we can push out? Yes and no. So my mother is my absolute hero. You know, she did. She did whatever she wanted. She worked, she wore jeans, went and, and uh, worked at the Mother Teresa home. I Because of her, I got to work with Mother Teresa one day, which totally shaped my view of, of charity and, and giving back. But she was also struggling. She, my mother's from India. All of a sudden, she's gone to Uganda with her, her new husband. They've been kicked out of Uganda. They're now in Yemen, which is such a closed society for a young woman like my mother, who was an only child, pampered, taken care of, and, and lived this open life. And all of a sudden, she's struggling, too, trying to, to survive in this new society both my parents want me to be good because they know that me being good is the only way that I'm going to survive and be accepted, right? So sometimes the rules that apply to them as they were trailblazing their way didn't apply to me because I had to fit in. That went in my childhood caused a lot of anger for me. And I realized as I grew up what they were trying to do because I did the exact same thing when I moved to Canada, Right. I had my kids. I was from Yemen. I was trying to figure out who I was. And and um, so I, I completely understood um, what life looked like for them. But, yeah, my mom is amazing. So take us back to that time as a young girl growing up in this country, where, as you say, your, your mother's not quite settled. How does a young person like you, woman in a society that really doesn't create a lot of advantages for women, how did you find that advantage? Well, speaking English for one has been a huge advantage for me in my entire life. 
even coming to Canada. I think if I had come to Canada and I was struggling with English and people understanding me, I don't know that my outcomes would have been the same as they are. And I am very grateful to my mom for that. So my mother worked as a secretary in the American embassy um, when I was very young, and she fought tooth and nail to get me a scholarship to the international school. So this was the school where the children of all the ambassadors and, and uh, expat community were. There were no Yemeni students. There was definitely not a scholarship poor student. And initially, I, I didn't fit at all. My idea of fitting in was what I saw in the movies. And so I started swearing at my mom and cutting off my jeans that my parents worked really hard to afford. <laughs> and uh, one day, my, my dad just had enough. I was in grade six. And he was like, OK, this is enough. You, you don't belong there. But, you know, you're not one of them. You belong here in this society. He pulled me out of that school and put me in an in a all-girls Arabic school. That was really, really difficult because I didn't speak Arabic. My mom's from India. So at home, we spoke English or Swahili or Hindi. It was really difficult. I was I was still wearing my international school mini skirts and I was trying to put a hijab on top of it so that I could fit in. That didn't work. And then I realized that I had an advantage and my advantage was English. I started um, doing um, the other kids' homework for them, their English homework. And all of a sudden, everybody in the class was getting great grades. There was one year where I actually failed because I forgot to do mine while I was doing everybody else's. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and so that's, that's kind of how I fit in. People started noticing that. They appreciated that. You know, my differences, which I hated so much, were actually advantages. I learned about branding without actually knowing what branding meant at the time. You know, personal branding is, is make yourself valuable. We come back, Zara Al-Harazi becomes a young bride, but in a country where education and future role is expected to be my father's daughter, my husband's wife, my children's mother. Magazines, courses, websites by the thousands claim to show you how to follow your passion and your desires. They claim to help you define what you think you need to be and draw a picture for you about what life should look like. Here's the truth. There is no magic bullet, formula or rule book, and there is not one single template. I'll tell you what it takes. It takes everything you have and then some more. It takes your experiences, your hard work, your talent, your perseverance. It takes history, community. It takes opportunities and doors that are opened and some that are closed. It takes those you love and the values for which you are willing to sacrifice. And sometimes it simply takes luck and being in the right place at the right time. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman continues. My special guest is Zara Al-Harazi. She received RBC's Top 25 Immigrant Award. You're within the society, you're trying to fit in, you're starting to get some cachet and currency because you do have something that other people need, which is the ability to help them pass their English exam. And the fact that um, in a few years later, as my parents started making money and, and whatever, we got to go to Europe for summer vacations. And I used to go to, like, I, I would buy chocolates from the airport and, and I'd buy things from the joke shop, like some stink bombs and stuff like that. Things that these kids had never seen before in their lives. And I would bring it back and share it with everyone. <laughs> there's, there's a side to you I never saw in the other in interviews. You're just quite, you're very, quite clever. Um, age 17, you get married. Is that a young age to be married over there? Is that sort of just tradition? It's tradition. It's pretty average. I mean, it's almost too late at that point. You know, it's, it's a society where most girls get married before puberty. When we are young kids, we're taught that 
all we really need to worry about is, is marrying a good man from a good family, um, raising good children, keeping a good house. And that's it. That's, that's all we need to think about. And so for me, that was, it was so difficult because I did know what was different. I did get to go to Europe sometimes in the summers with my parents. I did have my international school background. So I saw what life could be. And at the same time, I was being told, but that's not for you. You can see, but you can't touch. Uh, at the time, my, um, my then husband was going to the U.S. And so I was very excited about, you know, actually getting a chance to leave Yemen because there was no other way that I would have been able to leave and go to university. You and your new husband head off to the United States. Where did you end up? Rolla, Missouri. <laughs> it was, oh my goodness. Uh, you know, it was interesting because um, I wanted to try everything. And he recognized, you know, to, to his credit, he recognized that I was just so hungry. You know, I was just so hungry for experience and so needing an escape. And so he said, okay, you have one year, do whatever you want. And in that one year, I wore belly shorts, short shorts, I smoked, I went to rock concerts, I, I did all sorts of stuff. And then at the end of the year, he was like, okay, that's it. Your, your year is done. And I totally did not expect that. So then that rebellion started in me again. It's like, well, what do you mean? I'm here. I'm in America. Who's going to make me go home? Was he, was he threatened by the fact that your eyes might have been shining, you were exciting because you were starting to feed your curiosity? You know, I, I am very different, at least then. I am very different than a lot of people, girls that come from Yemen. I just have ideas that girls just do not have. Um, I have a complete lack of fear that is not typical. And I think that scared everybody around me. You know, my mom would, would call me crazy Zara. She's like, what is she going to do next? Did she say that with some pride in her voice? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just have this incredible thirst for experience. So you move back, though, after, I guess, your husband finishes university. That must be another shock when he says we're heading back. Yeah, yeah. So I, um, So we went back to Yemen when I was 23 years old, um, 22, actually. I had two daughters. And he graduated and went back and coming from America and going back to Yemen was just, it was shocking. It was like a brand new culture shock for me. All of a sudden, the simple things I could do, like wear a pair of jeans and walk to the corner store or go to Walmart and pick my own furniture. Those simple pleasures were just not available anymore. I couldn't leave the house by myself. I had to wear, you know, the, the, the veil. I, I wasn't allowed to drive and walls closed in on me. I became really depressed. And, and then I started working. A friend of mine uh, said, you know, your English is good. You can go teach at the Yemen American Language Institute. It's, it's run by the State Department, the U.S. State Department. Here I was, I was teaching two classes a day. Um, I was making $2,000 a month, which was huge because my father as um, vice minister of planning for the government of Yemen made $300 a month, right? So I was making like huge money, but it was, it was difficult because I was a woman and most of those men did not want to be taught by a woman. They, they didn't think I was worthy. And so a lot of times uh, guys would walk into the classroom and see me and walk right back out again and say, no, I got 
pregnant again with my son. Then, then the civil war happened. Um, we didn't know. We we knew something was going to happen. We knew there was unrest, but we didn't know to what extent. So we had booked tickets to go to to Cairo for a month to just you know hoping that things would kind of calm down. The night before we were supposed to leave, um, about fifty tanks rolled right outside my front door, and then warplanes started taking off, and we were at war with the South. And that lasted for um, seven, eight months. The other side had these really old Scud missiles, like really old um, Scud missiles that never landed on their targets, right? So they landed wherever they did in the city. And we had to get up in the morning and call each other and see if everybody was okay. And the airport had shut down. And I could have left if I wanted to because my daughters were American. And the American embassy was evacuating uh, their citizens. And as their mother, I could go with them. But you know, I was 24 years old. I didn't know where I would go. Like, how can I leave everybody else behind? My parents, my husband. And, and so I, I made it, I, I decided to stay. And, uh, and, then, and then my son was born during the war. I hear you um, describe that in being in the hospital giving birth. And there's a, a cat with an infected eye. And they justify by saying in the middle of the operating room, well, we have the cat with the infected eye because we also have rats. Yeah. There was no medication. There was like, there was nothing. Every time they needed uh, medication, um, the doctor would go to the door and give my husband um, a prescription. And then he would have to run to three, four different pharmacies trying to find this medication. And one of the things that he brought back, because I was having uh, complications, was expired. Anyways, and my son was born by candlelight. Um, because the generator wasn't working at the hospital either. I hope he's a romantic today. Because, I mean, <laughs> he's a great kid. He's an engineer turned banker. Okay. Um, <laughs> and uh, we left right after that. You know, we 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 decided that we wanted a better life for our kids. The education system, the medical system. You know, just how society treats them. And we we uh, found Canada was accepting uh, immigrants if you had certain criteria. So you come to Canada, and I also read you decided to, to go to school. And there's a very funny story about you choosing art school and why you did it. In, in Yemen, my mom always tried to encourage me, right? And, and she couldn't encourage me in, in education because I, I wasn't that good. Um, math was really difficult for me. My grades were always borderline just, just above passing grade. So she encouraged me by telling me I was a good artist. And my mom's an amazing artist. She does these incredible oil paintings. And what I would do is I would take like a Hallmark card and I would put a piece of paper on it and I trace the the picture on the Hallmark card. And my mom would say, that's amazing. You're incredible. And she'd frame it and put it up and tell me that I was a great artist. So I decided to go to art school. (laughs) (laughs) They don't trace a lot in art school, do they? Oh, my goodness. It was just, you know, it was crazy. I remember one time, one of my first projects, we had to draw an anatomically correct skeleton. And I traced my skeleton from a sketch that I thought was pretty cool. He had like 19 ribs on one side. And and my, my teacher was like, this is not anatomically correct. I'm like, but it's creative. Right, you know, <laughs> I have to believe that art school there's a lot of cultural nuances. Like, people who go to art are right, very hip. I mean, how do you fit in? First of all, you're much older when you think about it in that age, and two, you don't have the context of growing up with 
Seinfeld or Friends or Jimi Hendrix or whatever it was happening at that time. Did that cause any issues? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I had huge gaps in my knowledge of popular culture. Like people would say Star Trek and I'd say, what? <laughs> um, you know, um, I remember going into this back staircase one day um, with a group of friends and and I'm like, what is this smell? It smells disgusting. And, and my friend Mike was like, Zara, you are so embarrassing. It was pot. <laughs> and I had never smelled pot before, you know. But you fell in love with marketing and the business side of creativity. That's cool, didn't you? I did. I did. So there's no such thing as marketing in Yemen. It's a very poor country. It's one of the poorest countries in the world. And so I discovered art and design and I absolutely fell in love with it. So I had challenges because I didn't know how to draw. However, I had the other part. You know, I was a really good creative director. In fact, we were at the point in my fourth year where all the other kids would come to me to look at their projects and give them my feedback. And so that's where my confidence started to build and, and I absolutely loved it. We come back, Zara Al-Harazi talks about dreaming and doing, and not solely for her benefit, but for society at large. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. Women-led enterprises are key to Canada's economy, and RBC is helping to accelerate and grow these businesses, sponsoring the RBC Canadian Women Entrepreneur Awards, a celebration of impact and achievement, and CEO, a radically generous community supporting women working on the world's to-do list. Women-led businesses and the economy matters to RBC. When I was doing my core values for my first company, I realized that I can't put things like excellence and honesty and integrity and, and stuff like that because those things are set in stone. They're, they're non-negotiable. Like I don't get to put it up on a wall and say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I aim towards integrity, right? You know, you have to be those things, otherwise get out of business. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman continues. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. My special guest is Zara Al-Harazi. She's an entrepreneur, inspirational speaker, and author. It's interesting that you always found a way to matter. And I ran advertising agencies for 30 years, and having someone with you that would come in with that context of seeing different parts of the world and different cultural norms and experiencing different things and always walking into situations where you didn't belong and had to find a way, I can see why you're an extraordinary creative director because you, you have an insight in humanity that people that haven't walked the trails you've walked couldn't possibly have. Well, and it was interesting because I would ask questions that they had never heard before. And it was simply because of my lack of knowledge sometimes or my different background sometimes. Um, but I, I would push them in different directions. And for example, there was this one kid who was so talented, but he was very, very into the skateboard culture. So everything he did was around the skateboard culture. And I, I remember saying to him one day, I'm like, why don't you do something different? And he's like, why? I like skateboard culture. And I'm like, yeah, but does everybody that's going to hire you, do they like that culture? And he thought about it and he's like, oh my God, my portfolio is because, you know, I don't, I don't have any differences. Like how's somebody going to hire me unless... It's a skateboard design company. But you didn't just get a job. You, you sort of hired yourself, didn't you and two friends from that school start? Did you start a business right out of university? So initially I worked for a very, very small company. I was their only designer. And my very first project that I did, I won every single international design award out there. And so then I wanted to try something bigger. So that was one year. And then the second year I went to a big agency as their most junior designer. 
And within a year and a half, I was head of the design department and on their new business team. And then with two friends, I started um, my own company because I, I just never liked how they did it. Like I always thought there was a better way to treat your clients. There was a better way to treat your employees. There was a better way to do work. I hated timesheets. You know, <laughs> I'm like, you can't be creative in, in like four hour blocks. So, um, so I just wanted to do it differently. And, and we started Foundry. So Foundry, you kept going for how long? Um, about 10 years. I did a lot of research on it. You've won, you won a lot of awards, had a lot of acclaim, overcame obstacles like people going, you know, you don't understand my audience. You just found a way to keep pushing things forward. What made you at the end of those 10 years go, I want to try something different? Two things. The first one was the 2008 global recession, and we weathered that one just fine. And then there was the second recession when oil prices, and you know, we lost almost $8 million of business in four months. And it was all my clients calling, Zara, I am so sorry. I'm really sorry to do this, but I, you know, and, and so that got frustrating. But the other thing was, I realized that as much as I loved design and marketing and, and, and my agency and my business... What my goal really was, was to get a divorce. I, I just wanted to be financially independent. I had been dependent my entire life on other people. You know, other people got to tell me what to do and when to do it. I didn't want child support or alimony. I just, I just wanted to be free. And it was like this drumbeat in my head. And so I realized that my big drive to build my first company wasn't really the love of that career, it was that financial independence that I was striving to get. It was the validity and the recognition that I wanted in, in Canada to feel like I was a participating member of this society. I didn't like marketing that much anymore. I'm like this, it just feels empty. There's nothing that gives me, that fills my soul. The whole time I was running my company, we would do free work for, for nonprofits. We did more than a quarter million dollars every year of just free um, websites, brands, designs for nonprofits. And, and that's where we won a lot of our awards because, you know, the nonprofits were so grateful. They let us be creative. I uh, sold Foundry. I worked at RBC as a senior consultant on the youth strategy. And then I, I started searching for, you know, what is the company that is going to make me happy and make me feel fulfilled? And I realized as part of my work on the youth strategy, um, I realized what a big skills gap there was in this country. And I already know what a big skills gap there are in countries like Yemen. And so I wanted to build a company that helps build that, but in a fun, entertaining way that is not like school. And so that's, that's what um, my business partner, Sarah, and I came up with. We met on the pages of Chatelaine magazine. She was top 20 under 30 in Canada, and I was Canadian Female Entrepreneur of the Year. It has been a massive learning curve for both of us to learn how to work together, <laughs> but it's been absolutely great. And so we launched um, our company at the start of COVID. And as, as we all know, there was not much need for a live in-person skills learning um, <laughs> company at the start of COVID. So what we did was we spent the last year and a half testing our product what people wanted, how they wanted to learn, um, you know, do we want to venture into the actual hard skills for work or how did we want to do it? And we got so much absolutely amazing feedback. Uh, we're rebuilding our company now. It's, it's a, a slightly different strategy. Um, fingers crossed it's launching um, this fall. And uh, I'm very excited. It's called Skillet. And you talk about Skillet 
In one of the interviews, you said, it's failure that makes us great. How important it is to fail and to fall and to stumble to realize that this is just great feedback. So share with the audience what that means, because a lot of people, when they stumble, sometimes they just decide to give up. I just think all my failures are, for me personally, I don't know that everybody kind of deals with things this way, but for me personally, whenever I failed, it made me more determined. My personality, I, I, I swear I have some kind of ADD or something, but I get very distracted by shiny things, you know? And so even if I'm in my worst spot where, where I've failed in, in a big way, I do get distracted by something really cool. And I focus on that. And I've learned to focus on that and move forward using that. You cannot focus on the failure. You have to focus on the lessons that you learned from it and the next thing that you want to do. Your book, Whatever It Takes, was that self-therapy for you to write that? Because you talk about in your introduction, the polarity that drives you through your life. Was it as much for you writing it as it is for others to read it? Uh, Yes and no. I signed this book deal with HarperCollins like eight years before the book actually came out. And at the time, what I wanted to do was write a book on branding because I wanted to establish myself as an expert so that I could continue to build my agency. And HarperCollins really wanted the memoir because they saw that polarity and they thought that's what people want to read. And I fought it for so long. Like I just, I fought it because I'm like, who's going to want to read my book? Who the hell am I to think that people are going to spend money and buy my book and actually learn anything from it? So, so there was a lot of self-doubt. I shared as much as I could. I didn't share everything because there's still a bit of fear, right? You know, you're, you're putting yourself on the table for people to judge and digest and, and comment on. I wish going back now that I could, I could change a few things and actually be honest because some of the questions that people came to me with about the fears and that disconnect between what's expected of them and, and what they are actually doing in their life. You know, I felt like when I heard those questions, I felt like I could have been better at, at putting that together. I've never said that out loud. Well, I think it's a beautiful thing that you're sharing because I've also listen to some of your talks. I mean, you're one of the most acclaimed speakers. I mean, speaker spotlight, you open up when you're on stage. You talk a lot about the pain points. You talk a lot about the scars, but you also talk a lot about the shiny objects, the opportunities, the things that you you go after. So I think you might, maybe you didn't do it in your book. I hear a lot of that honesty come through when you're on stage. It does. And you're absolutely right. Writing the book was more difficult because you have to get granular. One of the things I refuse to do in my life is is call people out or make someone look bad. And so I tried to stay very high level. But on stage, I decided that the day that my my speech becomes a canned speech that you know I can give in with, without feeling any emotion is the day that I'm gonna stop speaking. One of the, the most important things to me in my life is, is to give back. It's a big part of who I am. And so when I'm standing on stage in front of an audience, I am determined that they're going to get some value out of this. Hi, this is Tony Chapman. You're listening to Chatter That Matters presented by RBC. When we come back, Zara Al-Harazi talks about finding love. And so one of my core values um, was leave something behind. And it became such an important core value for my staff because they started looking at leaving something behind as part of their everyday. Like they'd go to a client meeting, people would come back to the office and they'd say, what did you leave behind today? 
If we always have that mindset about leaving something behind, what contribution do we add? What value do we add? I, I think life is going to be pretty good. Chatter that matters with Tony Chapman continues. My special guest is Zara Al-Harazi. She's an entrepreneur, inspirational speaker, and author. What are you hoping the audience walks away from after listening to you that they'll take back and say, I just they can't wait to be in front of people they love that just share something they've learned? I've been to so many different speeches where I walk away and I'm like, I'm fired up, I'm excited, and I'm, I'm ready to do something. And then three days later, you're back at point zero um, because that fire is not yours, it's theirs. One of the things that I get the most when people listen to me speak, and I absolutely love this, People saying to me, if you can do it, I can do it too. You took 23 years to get divorced. You were very open in an interview saying this was, a, this was a, a long time coming. Tell me how you, I guess, finally had the courage to do so. You become a wild person, you call about your book in the 40s, but then you remarry. So just give me a sense of that side of your life. My children are really important to me. My family is really important to me. My ex-husband wasn't a terrible human being. I just wanted more from life. I felt guilty because I felt like I was abandoning everyone and I didn't even know what I was running towards. And then I got to the point where I realized that I am allowed to live the life that I want. I am allowed to want something different than what everybody else wants. I am allowed to want to fall in love and go on a date, which I had never been on. So I got a divorce and I wanted to try everything. I did crazy things that I won't even talk about now. I remember one time my daughter texted me and she's like, please tell me that's the last item on your midlife crisis bucket list. <laughs> but, you know, the kids just kind of watched and they were like, oh my God, what is she going to do now? Right. You know, what is, what is next? Right? Looking at now, your eyes are shining. You're excited about it. So they, they had to appreciate that, that part of it. It took a while. It took a while for them to appreciate that because initially I never told anybody that I was unhappy. It took me being who I actually am for them to understand. You remarried. How does that working out? Really well. Mayo is the most incredible person in the world. He cold called me. That's how we met. Um, <laughs> um, he is um, the most conservative and the most free-spirited man I've ever met and also the kindest. And he just lets me be. And, and, and I love that. He just lets me be. If you had a chance to go back and talk to yourself at that young age, what advice would you give that person? You know, I've been asked this question before and I've struggled with it in the past because of course there's a lot of things that you say, I wish I did differently. But one of the things I have learned and I'm determined to always do in my life is to not second guess myself and not have any regrets. Whatever I might have told myself to do that would have changed my outcome might have changed where I am today. It might have changed who I am today. You know, I, I might not be as resilient. I might still be a housewife in Yemen. You know, I might not be as adventurous. And I think all those lessons were the best part of me. So I always end my podcast with the three things I learned today. Differences are an advantage. I think a lot of times we feel like an imposter. We're pushed back in our back feet because we don't feel like we belong. That Maslow's hierarchy, do I belong? Your differences has really defined who you are. Failure makes me more determined. We're all going to have failures. We're going to have speed bumps, derailments. We're going to have setbacks. We're going to have things that we don't control. But if they make you more determined versus more scared, you're going to take advantage. They'll become your fuel. The final thing that I learned is just how important it is for you to serve others. 
when you're talking about people come up to you and say, if you can do it, so can I. And how important that is to you to realize that you are, without ever intending to be, without ever claiming to be a hero, you're this kind of Sherpa Yoda person in life that helps others get to where they want to go. And for that, you truly are an extraordinary person. And I'm so honored you joined me in Chatter That Matters. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Joining me now on Chatter That Matters is Catherine Corp. She's the Director of Marketing, Newcomer Segment. Welcome, Catherine. Thanks, Tony. So, Catherine, tell me a little bit about what you do as Director of Marketing for the Newcomer Segment. Our focus is on newly arrived newcomers, and we aim to help them settle in in Canada and reach their full potential. Newcomers seek connections. It's one of the first things they're looking for. They've left their home. They are starting over for all intents and purposes. And and so they need to know who they can trust. And that's not always clear upon arrival. Firstly, we we seek to meet their immediate needs, which are, are very simple needs. They're simple banking needs. They need somewhere to put their life savings that they brought with them. They need to be able to transact quickly and start building a credit history in Canada, which opens further doors. I have to believe the word trust is paramount. And I have to imagine that a lot of people have left their home country because they're losing trust in the life that that provided. So how do you rebuild it so that people feel confident that the system, the institutions that are available in Canada are ones that they can lean on? Advice that is authentic demonstrates we are understanding of the plight that they're in in those early days. When you're talking about permanent residents, they're not arriving with a job like temporary foreign workers might be. Again, opening doors, creating connections for them as best that we can, connecting with their community to help them find work in Canada. One of the barriers that they often run into is that most employers are seeking Canadian experience and they don't come with that. So how do we help them get that Canadian experience? So we partner with other agencies, settlement agencies, employment agencies. We need to place more value on newcomers um, and what they bring. They are the single source of growth of our population. I ride in a lot of Ubers and taxis. And very often the person driving is new to Canada. They're very excited about Canada and the life they're building for their children. But there's a, sometimes an element of sadness when they said, I used to be a chemical engineer. I'd run a plant. I was a doctor. We don't seem to open our doors to those skills that they bring in. I think we're getting better. Newcomers struggle to find the same work that they had to for their skills to be recognized. We all play a part of that as citizens, as, as neighbors, and as part of their community. You know, Catherine, I've talked to a lot of people at RBC and the work they're doing, and there's such pride when they're giving back. I have to believe your role as director of marketing, newcomer segment, where you are helping to enable dreams, that this conviction and confidence that these people had to choose Canada, and you're trying to open doors to them. That must be one of the most rewarding jobs at the bank. Absolutely, because of the humanity that comes with it. And it's been educational for me as well. I have a very diverse team. It's personally rewarding to see them succeed. All I needed to do is show them I trusted them and recognize the value they brought to their role and their passion for success. Do you think there's an opportunity for Canada to take advantage of the fact that we've opened our doors to so many immigrants 
And behind them, there's millions, if not tens of millions of families and friends that they're connected to around the world. Is that not an opportunity for Canada in terms of building our global presence, our values, the things that we believe in, the, the, the goods and services that we want to trade? What we may not even be aware of as Canadians is the reputation we already have. Newcomers look to Canada because of our acceptance, because of our tolerance. There's so much room for improvement in that area, but we already do have a very good reputation relative to our peers in the global market. But yes, I think there is an opportunity for Canada to champion for newcomers, for all citizens to, to understand the value that they bring and to support Canada's ambitions to bring more newcomers to the country. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network.